You're listening to a sermon preached at University Presbyterian Church in Seattle, Washington. For more information, please visit our website, theupc.org. This summer, did a little camping, found myself in the woods with a bunch of guys who are trying to find their way home. Not so much that we were lost. Um, what we shared in common is that we were all dads. And if you're a dad, you know, sometimes uh, being a dad is a hard thing to be. And we were talking about that together. In fact, it wasn't just that we were dads, truthfully. It's that all of us in our own way had a story to tell about how we felt like a failure as a father. And we did a lot of stuff. We went uh, fishing. We hiked. We ate a lot of food. We cooked and, and laughed. But the most poignant moments were the moments we were sitting around a campfire, wishing the smoke would go on the other guys, and just talking about um, kind of taking the stock of our lives, taking the measure of our lives. And um, this week, I went back to that camping trip as I was reading our text, which is Hosea chapter 11, because in that chapter, God, through the Holy Spirit, gives Hosea a picture of himself as a father. Now, that's not so much of a surprise. If, if, if we've come to know Jesus Christ, we know he teaches his disciples to pray, saying, Our Father who art in heaven, so that the image of a father... Not so surprising, but in Hosea 11, the picture is of a failed father. Sitting around that campfire as we tell our stories of pain and brokenness and failure, if somebody had turned to me knowing I'm a Christian and said, George, so this is hard, really hard. Where in all of this is your God? I would probably say, oh, well, you know, he's in heaven. He's aware of what we're going through. He loves us deeply. Uh, he's soliciting our prayers so that he can be involved in the struggles of our lives. And he can renew us and give us a new hope. I, I, I hope I would have said something like that. But I never would have expected that instead of God showing up in heaven, that he would show up sitting in this circle as one of the failed fathers just the way Hosea presents him to us in Hosea chapter 11. It's almost as if we're going down the line, sharing our story one after another, and then there's one guy that nobody noticed, and he kind of leans forward and he goes, my name is God. I'm a father, and I haven't done so well. And he continues, when Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt, I called my son. But the more I called them, the more they went from me. They kept sacrificing to the bales and offering incense to idols. Yet it was I, I, who taught Ephraim to walk. I took them up in my arms, but they did not know that I healed them. I led them with cords of human kindness, with bands of love. I was to them like those who lift infants to their cheeks. I bent down and fed them. Now they shall return to the land of Egypt. And Assyria shall be the king because they've refused to return to me. The sword rages in their cities. It consumes their oracle priests and devours because of their schemes. My people are bent on turning away from me. To the most high they call, but he does not raise them up at all. How can I give you up, Ephraim? How can I hand you over, O Israel? 
How can I make you like Adma? How can I treat you like Zeboim? My heart recoils within me. My compassion grows warm and tender. I will not execute my fierce anger. I will not again destroy Ephraim, for I am God and no mortal, the Holy One in your midst, and I will not come in wrath. He shall go after the Lord who roars like a lion. When he roars, his children shall come, trembling from the west. They shall come trembling like birds from Egypt and like doves from the land of Assyria. And I will return them to their homes, says the Lord. Our text this morning is Hosea 11, the words of our Lord. And I want to invite you to open up your Bible to Hosea chapter 11. If you didn't bring a Bible, open up the black book in the rack in front of you and turn, please, to page 737. And let's just read one of these verses again together because I want to make sure you hear it. Would you stand with me? And uh, if you're able, and after we're done reading, I'll say this is the word of the Lord so that if you believe it, you can say thanks be to God. Listen carefully, you're reading his holy word. Verse 9. I will not execute my fierce anger. I will not again destroy Ephraim, for I am God and no mortal, the Holy One in your midst, and I will not come in wrath. This is the word of the Lord. Grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord lasts forever. Please be seated. If you're here this morning and you're ready to come back home, And this story is for you. It's a story of God's grace, his surprising grace. And I want to argue this morning with you that grace is the only measure of your life. The surprise in this passage is that God, the holy, perfect, all-powerful God, identifies with my failure and with your failure. Who would have thought that God would be sitting in this circle of men, sharing their pain, and that God would break in with the same story? You and I learn how to calibrate, how to measure our lives from the very beginning. But those of you who are parents, moms and dads, you know that there's a particular kind of a calibration that happens when you start to get pregnant, right? We start measuring things immediately, not just pounds and inches and centimeters, we start measuring our capabilities to raise our children, and we begin to read. We become readers, right? You know the books. I mean, I don't know what you guys read these days. I was reading this a long time ago. What to expect when you're expecting, what to expect the first year, and then there's the book of the one year, your child at one year, your child at two years, your child goes all the way up to six. That's a ton of reading. There's everything that's out there, everything except for the book that I think really would have helped me, which would have been titled, What the Heck? I Never Expected This. But we want to do whatever we can to be the perfect parents to raise the perfect kids, right? Because we're trying to measure our lives and sometimes their lives by what? Performance. How well will you perform? Performance is the way we measure our lives. Now, God, who in the book of Proverbs says, train up a child in the way that he should go and he'll never depart from it, is now sitting in the campfire ring blowing smoke out of his eyes going, (coughs) my child departed from the way. I mean, just think about that. He did everything right. 
Did you hear what I read? I loved him. I called him my son. I taught him. I took him up in my arms. I healed him. Led him with cords of human kindness, bands of love. I bent down and fed him. This is a God who follows all of the steps. And what happens? They go away. His son turns away. I think if parents were graded, if their success were measured by the outcomes in the lives of their children, then we would have to all admit, God gets an F. Think about that, mom and dad. There must be another measure. And so the question this morning is, well, um, how would a God who identifies with my failure measure my life, if not by performance? I mean, I want to suggest we tend not to measure our lives very well. And I, guys, I want to talk to you for a minute because I think for us, it's harder. We're, we are so performance-oriented that we can't measure our lives uh, any other way. There was this uh, exercise. We had a facilitator with us. And um, he, he said, what I want you to do is I want you guys to lie down on the ground. He had us lie down on the ground and put plaster uh, on our faces. And it was a little weird. Um, he wanted us to make these plaster masks. And um, so we, you know, did, peeled them off of each other, sat them out in the sun on the rocks and let them dry. And later on that afternoon, he had us paint on the masks. And he said, what I want you to do is I want you to paint on the outside of the mask how the world sees you or, or how you'd like the world to see you. And then on the inside of the mask, I want you to paint how you feel, how you see yourself. And this was fascinating. We did this artwork, and then uh, later one night, we sat around the campfire again. It was late, it was dark, and we went around, and we just each of a guy would hold up his mask and say, here's the world sees me, here's how I see myself. And we watched each other's faces glow in that night, kind of a, a moment of secret honesty. And boy, my perception of that group changed. And boy, the takeaway for me was, guys, we don't measure our lives very well. One guy, when I looked at the outside of his life, his mask, so to speak, I was so impressed I was intimidated. Just the day before we went on this trip as we were gathering for our first breakfast, I heard another one of the guys say to this man, hey, I saw your interview on the front page of the Wall Street Journal, congratulations. I thought, oh my gosh, this guy is really well dressed. This is what success looks like. You know, when you get interviewed on the front page of the Wall Street Journal, wouldn't you say, that's a good day? That you've, you, you've, you've achieved something in life. And so when he started to share the backside of his mask, I, it was almost like I couldn't even see the guy that I, this was a, it was a Madison Avenue executive, incredibly creative. By the way, the mask was quite good. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and and he, but he turns it around and he says, and the confidence wasn't there in his voice anymore. I work very hard. But all the work in the world has not been able to save my marriage. And I want so badly to save my children. There was another guy who, when I met him, seemed so educated and so refined. He was from a major metropolitan area and a plastic surgeon. And he was across the fire from me, so I had to look through the smoke. But one thing I, I, I couldn't miss were the tears in his eyes. 
And he said, I feel like a failure all the time. I've always wanted to be a doctor, but when I applied to med schools, all the letters came back as rejections. I didn't get into a single medical school. I worked, pay off loans for another two years, applied again, and I did get into a medical school. What I wanted to be was an orthopedic surgeon. And when it was time for residency offers to come back on match day, not a single program admitted me for orthopedic surgery. So I'm a plastic surgeon. Never really... Wanted to be a plastic surgeon, but I do it. And you know what? He does it really well. He owns two houses, and I guess he's been very successful. But he he told us a story, and he said, you know, here's how it works with plastic surgery. You might not know this, that when you come out of the procedure, the anesthesia is still working its effects on the facial muscles. And so the face is terribly distorted. It doesn't look like what it's really going to look like. So you don't know if you succeeded or not. He told these guys that every day, all day long, I work on faces, and I I go home at night, and I can't sleep, because I'm afraid that the next morning I'm going to take those gauze pads off of that face, and it's going to be horrible, and I, and I, I think that I am just one day away from being discovered as a failure. So let me show you my mask. This is me. Can you tell? No hair. This is me in a couple of years. I'm getting there fast. It's the front. That's the back. And I'm not going to tell you my story today. But um, I don't measure myself very well either because I measure by performance. And each and every person here, if you were to look around, the people don't, don't do it because you don't want to embarrass yourself or them. They have a story behind their mask, a story of hurt and a story of pain. And if you look at the front, you, you're going to make some kind of judgment about them. You're going to go, whoa, they wear nice clothes, or, or they don't. Or, whoa, they drive a fancy car, or they don't. Or, whoa, they got into UW, you know, or they didn't, or what, you know, whatever it is. Whoa, they go to the gym three times a week, or maybe, whoa, they go to the dialysis, dialysis lab three times a week. And you make these kind of a judgment about who's in, who's out, who's a success, who's a failure. And, um, you know, if you assess everybody as a failure, then what's going on inside of you is called pride. And if you, if you assess everybody else as a success relative to you, what's going on inside of you is called shame. And, you know, those are the dynamics. And there's no objectivity. It's just a matter of who you choose to benchmark against, right? People that are better than you, and you're going to feel bad. People that are worse than you, you're going to feel good. But it's all artificial. How would you really measure yourself? Not by performance, Hosea urges God's people This is human nature. But in verse 9, God breaks into this metaphor, this analogy, and says, you know what? It only goes so far because I am not a human. And I love this here. Verse 9 says, I am not God and no mortal. And that the Hebrew literally would translate, I am God and not a man. Now, that's good news for a lot of reasons for us, to know that God's not a man. Right? It's not male. And, and, and nor is God literally a, a father in, in the same sense as we are. But that's important for us because many of us can't get our heads around that concept because our father did measure us by performance and didn't love us in the way that Hosea has been describing. 
But there's another reason that God says, I am not a man. It's because I have a different measure of my people. There's something else going on in the holy, sacred heart of God that you wouldn't guess from the outside. So what's beautiful about this passage is God says, let me just take my mask off for a moment and allow you to see the pain in my heart. And we would call it grace. So let's understand this. How does God measure our lives? What is this grace? Well, just to get a little bit of context here, if you lived in the 8th century B.C., if you were a man, let's imagine, in Israel, maybe you're a prophet like Hosea and you're writing this book, you would have every reason to measure Israel's value, worth, identity according to performance, and it would be negative. The verdict would be negative. In fact, this is the way that prophets in Israel oftentimes functioned. Scholars call it the covenant lawsuit. They weren't lawyers in the same sense that we were, but they would look at the covenant, the promises and the obligations that deal between God and his people in ancient Israel, and they would say, you're not living up to your end of the bargain. And so they would accumulate all of the evidence that says, you know, you better get back to this covenant uh, or you're not going to experience God's grace. And, and between chapters 4 and chapters 11, by the way, we have a section of, of literature that's a unit. It's bracketed on both sides by the Hebrew word for covenant lawsuit. It's reeve. And it's translated indictment at both ends. You could see it there, uh, beginning of 4 and, and, and uh, at the beginning of 12. And this is, this is the indictment of the judge against God's people. And all the performance-based evidence accumulates cycle after cycle. And what we expect here when we come to the very end, the climax of it in Hosea 11 is for the judge himself to render verdict. The prosecuting attorney, Hosea, is resting his case. And now we wait the judge to come and say, just guilty, to, to just unleash a withering judgment on God's people. This is what your performance deserves. And, and, and you know what? What do we get? Not a judge. We get a broken-hearted father. Right here. A broken-hearted father who says, I will not hand you over. I will not unleash my wrath. I will not come in judgment. This is, a, this is an unexpected verdict. And, and this is grace. But do you hear what's colliding in the heart of God? Can you hear the, the pathos here? How can I give you up, Ephraim? That's an affectionate name for Israel. How can I hand you over, Israel? Uh, my compassion warms Within me, my heart recoils. It's turning over. There is anger. The anger is the, uh, is, is the anger of unrequited love. And some of us understand that. It's the, it's the response of somebody who loves so much and watches a child slip away into self-destructive oblivion. And, and, and this is an angry God to watch that happen. And yet... There's also this love. This is the kind of love that only a parent could understand. For a, for a child, it's just mine. No matter what they do, this is my child. My heart is bound to this child. And so there's this anger and this love that's just churning. You get these questions, this rhetorical uh, conversation. It's the heart of God reasoning with himself. What am I going to do? There's judgment, yes, but there's love, and that's greater. I will not come in anger. This is a God who would sooner self-destruct in an impossible contradiction between anger 
and love. This is a God who would rather bring judgment upon himself than harm his beloved children. And so he offers another verdict and another way to look at our lives, and that is grace. God measures our lives not by performance, but by grace, and grace overcomes all failure. This points us to the cross, doesn't it? If you ever want to know how hot the fury of God is against the, the sinfulness of this creation, the injustice and the violence on this planet, look at the cross. This is God's no. If you ever want to know how unfathomable is the depth of God's love for you, look at the cross. This is God's yes. This gives us a picture of grace, God pouring out his life for us. Grace, here's my definition. There's a lot of confusion about this. If you're taking notes, write this part down. Grace is perfect acceptance in total failure. Grace is perfect acceptance in total failure. Some people call it uh, uh, God's riches at at Christ's expense. That's an acronym, grace. God's riches at Christ's expense. It's God holding himself accountable for our bad in Jesus Christ and giving us credit for Jesus' good. Let me tell you a story. When I was in high school, I had a friend named uh, Jamie. And we were best friends. What was interesting about Jamie, he he had a very special relationship with his father. It was just a great relationship. Uh, talked about his dad a lot. I knew his dad meant a lot to him. Well, one time, Jamie invited me over to his, to his house. Jamie uh, lived in a, in a poor part of town. He didn't have much money at all. It was a very large family living in a two-room apartment, brick apartment. It was dark. They divided rooms with carpets that they would nail to the ceiling and create some sense of privacy. It was a, a high-crime area. But it was a tight-knit community. It was Irish-American community. And uh, one afternoon, while I was there, there was a road race in town. It was a local road race that the community was doing together. And uh, we ran in this race. Now, Jamie wasn't a runner. He was a hockey player. But I was a runner. And so we ran shoulder to shoulder. I paced him. I pushed him. And we did really well. Jamie did really well. Uh, We were out in front. And the whole town was there as we got near the finish line. It's actually Bunker Hill Monument. Uh, great venue. Uh, very exciting moment. And I'm thinking to myself, if I win this race, this is the first race that I will have ever won in my life. But we knew that Jamie's dad was going to be at the finish line. And coming around that last bend, I could see Jamie's dad cheering for Jamie. And I don't know if you can imagine uh, what I did, but I started to shorten my pace I started to double over a little bit more, and I did what runners call dying. I died. And Jamie just zoomed right past me and broke the tape. And when the race was over and the crowd gathered at the foot of Bunker Hill Monument and a a circle opened up and someone with a microphone called the winner's name, it was Jamie's name. I heard his name in front of the whole town. Everybody cheered. His dad came and gave him a hug, and there was a trophy. The sweetest loss of my life was that moment. I will tell you, that's grace. Now, you can measure your life by performance if you want, but let me tell you who you're competing against. Not Israel the son, but Jesus the son. 
So I don't know if Jesus runs very fast. I think he wears sandals. Um, but imagine Jesus and you lining up at the race of life, and the gun goes off, and there you go. How, how well are you going to do against Jesus? What's your performance going to be like, right? Remember, this guy doesn't lie, doesn't steal, doesn't lust, or get angry unnecessarily, you know, all those things. So there you are. You know pretty soon Jesus is going to pull away from you. And he's going to fade into the crowd. You're never going to see him for the rest of the race. You're going to continue to, until you straggle over the finish line. And you know very well who won the race, right? It's Jesus. And so when the crowds gather in this big circle and you hear a microphone and a voice and somebody says the name of the winner of the race, do not be surprised if you hear your name. Because that's God's heart. Because God is going to give you Jesus' time. And he's going to give your time to Jesus. See, that's God's riches at Christ's expense. If you ask yourself, why, why would Jesus do this? Why would God do this? Jesus, because as he's running the race, he sees the glowing face of his father at the finish line, and he knows his heart. He gets this. Grace is perfect acceptance and total failure. It's a different way to measure your life. And so how do we respond? Well, let me just give me a, another minute. We got we to gotta make our home with the sun. Jesus is the sun. We make our home with the sun. Why do I use that language? It comes from verse 11 uh, where he says, I will return them home. There's this picture in 10 and 11 of a lion, a great lion roaring, and I think this is the proclamation of the gospel upon the death and resurrection of God's only son, Jesus Christ. There's a great roar at the center of history, and then his children shall come trembling from the east and the west, north and the south, from Egypt and Assyria. They will come home to God's grace. How do you do that? How do you respond when you hear the lion roar? When grace finally settles in your heart. Well, two, two things. First of all, you go after the sun in, in the moment of salvation. And I want to be really clear because some of you don't know Jesus' grace. Some of you don't know for sure that you're a Christian. And I want to give you an opportunity this morning. Because the Apostle John, in John chapter 1 says, writing of Jesus, he came to what was his own and his own people did not accept him. But to all who receive him, who believed in his name, it's, that's all, just who believed in his name, he gave power to become children of God, who were born not of blood or of the will of the flesh or the will of man, but of God. John's saying Jesus brings people home simply by believing that Jesus is the embodiment of God's grace. And yes, there is judgment, but the only judgment there is, is the refusal of grace. I mean, there's judgment even in this passage, verses 5 through 7. You can look at it later. There's a sword in the city. It's not going well because my people have refused my grace. So let that not be us. We have an opportunity to go after Jesus in the moment of salvation this morning to simply say to him, I want to receive your grace and become your child for all of eternity, whether I succeed or fail. The other moment here is the present moment. For all of us, every day, there's a moment where you'll have to decide, am I living my life in an office or in a home? They're very different environments. In the office, it's performance-based, is it not? I mean, some of you are employers, 
And if one of your employees starts coming in a little bit later, a little bit later each day, at some point you're going to go, ah, something's wrong in his life, but I don't know how far I can go with this. Well, I can really tolerate all this. And there's, again, that cost-benefit evaluation. If it gets to be bad, at some point during the performance review, you know, you have to sit down and say, hey, look, I don't think I can hold on to you anymore as an employee, right? That's the way it works in the office. Truthfully, that's the way many of us choose to live to evaluate ourselves, to think that God is evaluating ourselves according to our performance. But at home, at home, when your child starts to struggle and they have a problem in their life, do you go, well, I don't know, at a certain point it just gets to be too much of a hassle? (laughs) No, I've never met that parent. I never have. You keep spending more. You keep giving more until you've got absolutely nothing left. And well, that's what God has done in Jesus Christ to secure us, to offer another verdict totally accepted over your life. All right, if we do that, we won't measure ourselves, we won't measure ourselves uh, by these judgments. We'll have objectivity in our lives now because at the cross there is no pride. It speaks of our brokenness. And there is no shame. It speaks of our belovedness. At the foot of the cross, you and I will not need our masks anymore, whether we face success or failure. We will do so with true humility, as Ryan prayed for us earlier, and great confidence. After all, he who did not withhold his own son, the Apostle Paul writes, but gave him up for all of us, will he not with him also give us everything else? Let's pray. God, in Jesus Christ, you have unmasked yourself. You have revealed your heart to us. In the cross. And we pray that we would come repentant and humble, no longer judging ourselves or others by performance, but coming home to your grace. And God, we just take a moment here to pray for anybody who in our midst might not have the assurance that that your grace belongs to them. God, we pray in this moment that the voice they hear is not the voice of the preacher, but the voice of their Heavenly Father calling them home. And we pray that by your Holy Spirit, you'll give them the capacity simply to say, I receive you, Jesus Christ, today. Thank you for dying on the cross for my sins. Come into my life as my Savior and as my Lord, and give me the assurance that now I am your child and have eternal life today and forever. And for the rest of us, may we relax, relax into the good news that you could never love us more and that you will never love us less than you have loved us perfectly in your Son, in whose name we pray. Amen. For more UPC audio or to find out about service times, visit us at upc.org. All online audio is available on CD and cassette. To order copies of sermons and classes, please visit upc.org slash audio, email audio at upc.org, or call 206-524-7301, extension 117.